following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. You all know as, as good parents that when your children misbehave, it's not sufficient to say, good boys don't do that. Bad girls don't do that. No, that really will accomplish nothing. You must become very specific and direct. You must not lie. You must not hit your brother. It must be that direct appeal that we make to our children in order to correct them and to correct their behavior. In the same way, God deals with us. The Bible doesn't simply have general moral platitudes and commandments by which God would frame our lives, but God is constantly in the Bible moving from the general to the specific. He moves to address us. He speaks to us. He speaks to you in your conscience. This is something that we seek to do here in our preaching. We seek to lay out the indicatives of God's Word uh, and come to the imperatives of how the Holy Spirit would address the consciences of each one of us as we're gathered here. It's what you need to do not only as parents, but as fellow believers in the body of Christ, being willing to come alongside and speak a necessary word of encouragement and comfort or even of admonition and correction uh, to one another. And it's what Eliphaz now is doing here in Uh, Job chapter 5. Let me remind you of where we are. After Job's grievous trial and sitting for seven days in reflection and mourning uh, and seeking the mind of God, he vents himself in chapter 3. He does so in a very foolish way. He says he wishes he'd never been conceived or born. He wishes when he was born, he died at death. And of course, that's absolutely impossible. But he's, he's venting, he's not expressing faith. And then in his third part of that speech, he at least begins to turn his attention to God by asking why. Why does the Lord drag it out? That's a question that we've often asked, on, I think, when we see someone suffering, going through not just months, but years of interminable suffering. Why, Lord? Why drag it out? And Job's asking that question. Now, Job overspoke himself. As I mentioned to you, Calvin said that Job had a good case that he made poorly and his friends had a bad case they made well. And Job was not making his case very well as he is venting. So we have in chapters 4 and 5 the first speech and the series of speeches between uh, Job and his friends. And Eliphaz, who is the eldest amongst them, obviously the wisest, should be the most godly, speaks first. And he begins to uh, indict Job for hypocrisy. Hypocrisy for two reasons. Part of that was because how Job spoke. And Eliphaz has no patience at this point, which he should have had. But also, he could not fathom the reality that a godly man could be going through the sufferings that Job was enduring. And so he and his friends, as we will see, reached the conclusion that Job was a gross hypocrite and sinner. Now in chapter 4, he speaks uh, more generally. He does seek to uh, indict Job 
uh, with three arguments. Uh, if a man perishes in the way of life, it's because he's wicked. If, if a man is e- suffers evil, it's because he's done evil. And anybody that has the intensity of suffering that Job is suffering must be very wicked. He then moves to a revelation he received, which I think was a valid revelation from God. It's the first statement recorded in Scripture about the transcendent holiness of God. It's a, it's a, it's a statement that's repeated throughout the Old and New Testaments that no man, no flesh, no woman, boy or girl, high or low, can be righteous in the sight of God. And he builds the case then about the transcendence of God and basically saying that it's wrong then to push back. It's wrong for a person to argue with God or to doubt the purposes of God. Having stated that general principle, now in chapter 5, he begins to hone in on Job and speak specifically uh, in application to him. Now in these first 16 verses... He deals with the matter of of arguing and and pushing back against God. Now, as we look at these verses, let me remind you as well of some principles. How are we going to get the the wheat out of the chaff? Um, How do we discern in Job that which is for us and that which is not for us? Now, you know that everything that is revealed in the Bible is revealed accurately. But it doesn't mean that everything real in the Bible is a truth that God would have us to live by. He reveals many things, all in His wisdom, all ultimately for our good and our profit. So how do we determine then, when we have sections like this, that um, these are things that we may apply to ourselves, or I may apply to you as I preach? Remember last week I said there's four principles we'll keep in mind. There's much that's good here, both in terms of doctrine and practice. And we want to apply that. Uh, There's much that's wrong here, particularly in terms of the application of doctrine and practice, and we want to avoid that. So we have to read with great uh, discernment, pluck out the good. Now the way you do that is by comparing Scripture with Scripture. This is how you determine what is true. And this is how we can determine as we look through these speeches the things that the Holy Spirit would have for us. Remember, this is wisdom literature. And what we're going to see as we work through these speeches is that many of the things that these men will say, not only repeated in Proverbs in particular, but in the Psalms and in the New Testament. And so it is right for us to look at this in a positive way for ourselves as we consider this speech. And so what I want you to understand is that in your suffering, you're not to fight against God, but to seek God. All right? In your suffering, and not to fight against God, but to seek God. And we'll consider those two things. Uh, the warning against fighting against God, the exhortation then to seek God. The warning is in the first seven verses. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For anger slays the foolish man, and jealousy kills the simple. I've seen the foolish taking root... I cursed his boat immediately. His sons are far from safety. They're even oppressed in the gate, and there's no deliverer. His harvest, the hungry devour, and take it to a place of thorns. And the schemer is eager for their wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For a man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. 
Eliphaz begins the exhortation with an appeal to the testimony, so to speak, of the godly. Look around you. Check, think in terms of the saints, of the holy ones. He says, they all will agree with me. He's quoted scripture in the previous chapter, or a vision that he's received. And now he simply appeals to the consensus of the godly. Which is interesting as well, isn't it? This is a, is a part of the country about which we know very little, but obviously it wasn't just Job and his family and these free friends. There was a, a community of, uh, of saints to which he could appeal. Now, of course, the problem is the saints had exactly the same problem that Job's friends did, and to some degree that Job did as well. And that is, well, how in the world can you explain this kind of suffering? But the saints also understood, as Eliphaz now appeals to them, this exhortation that we have in verse 2. Anger slays the foolish man, jealousy kills the simple. These two terms, foolish and simple, are in the Bible set in contrast to godliness. The fool is the man who says in heart there is no God. The foolish man is the one who pushes back against God. The simple and children, often in Proverbs, this word is used to describe you young covenant children. The simple, her minds are open to everything, who don't have discernment, who are easily led astray. And, and what Eliphaz is saying here is that uh, those who fight against God, those who are vexed, and that's the, the word here is vexation, the fool is vexed. Those who are envious of others as they're going through their own trials and suffering, they are fighting against God. But you'll notice he's implying then that it is absolutely foolish to do so because vexation or anger slays the foolish man and jealously kills the simple. That the attitude of, of anger, of gross discontent, against the purposes of God, against the lot of life as you judge it's fallen upon you, envy of those who have not been through the trials and difficulties through which you have been, vexation, anger, and envy destroy. They destroy a person. Perhaps you've, you know people like this. All of their anger, all their envies, it's recorded in their faces. It's the kind of person I'm always hesitant to ask how you're doing, because I know the answer that I'm going to get. They're never happy. It's always uh, complaining and bitterness and vitriol. And that's what anger does to you. You understand this. This is a, a very important warning that uh, you get eaten up by anger, it will control your life, it will shape you physically, it will shape you mentally, it will shape you spiritually. And so pray for that quiet and gentle spirit that submits to the Lord. Now, he also speaks here of the judgment that God brings in slaying uh, the foolish and the simple. He does so in verses... Uh, 3 through 5. I've seen the foolish taking root, and I cursed his abode immediately. His sons are far from safety. They're even oppressed in the gate, and there's no deliverer. His harvest, the hungry devour, take it to a place of thorns, and the schemer is eager for their wealth. Eliphaz admits that uh, there's a period of time in which the wicked can prosper. 
But he says it's a very brief period of time. He said, I've seen him take root. And uh, I've longed for and knew that God would curse them very suddenly. He does not allow, does not allow the wicked to live long in their wickedness. Obviously, that's an error. God does judge the wicked at times in this life. He will judge the wicked for eternity in hell. But sometimes he allows the wicked to take root in this life for a long time. But Elahaz says the wicked will be rooted up. He'll have no prosperity. He will have no seed. He says that uh, his sons are far from safety. They're oppressed in the gate and there's no deliverer. So even if he left his wealth to his children, they would have no justice in the court. The gate is the court. They would have no deliverer, no mediator, no redeemer to step forward on their behalf. And they would lose everything. In fact, he says, the estate of the wicked is lost because the hungry will devour his harvest. And take it, the harvest, the animals, to a place of thorns, which might refer to a corral that is made of thorns. And the schemer is eager for their wealth. Do you see the insensitivity of Eliphaz at this place? Obviously, as Job in mind, uh, the robbers have taken all of Job's wealth. God has taken all of Job's children. Uh, there's been none to stand in their place. There's been no redeemer. Later on, Job will plead for that redeemer. And he will, by God's grace, have some sense of the future of a redeemer. But right now, there's no redeemer for Job. His children have been vanquished. And this is because he is fighting against God. He then gives the grounds of this. Notice that verse 6 begins with the little word for. I'll keep reminding you of this. Look for the logical connections as you read the Bible. So why is all this happening? Well, it's not a natural occurrence, he says in verse 6. Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. In other words, it's not causeless. It's not needless. In fact, the evil in the world is not a result of God's creation. Now, God created all things very good. The evil in the world is because of sin. That's what Eliphaz is reminding us of here. That these are not natural things. No, but rather, in verse 7, this is one of the more famous lines in the book of Job. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. You children, we've been here for the... For the bonfire, you've been on the beach, and as the wood is burning, what happens? The sparks go up in the air. That is a law. That is a law of science, but it is a law that illustrates a spiritual law. That there's trouble in the world, not naturally springing out of the earth, but trouble in the world because of the nature of man, because of sin, because we're born dead in sins and trespasses. We're born for trouble. And he's right. All of us are going to have this trouble. It truly is the sparks fly upward. Now everything that Eliphaz says here is true. He's simply applying it in the wrong way. It is true that often the wicked will be rooted up in this world, but particularly for all eternity. It is true that vexation, anger, and envy destroy it is true that often in the generations of the wicked, uh, the wickedness will continue to be punished. He's wrong when he thinks this is the problem with Job, you see. 
He's too narrow. He's got tunnel vision. And he can only see that there can be one cause for these things that have happened. That must be Job's personal sin. But that should not keep us from learning the lessons. It's a very important lesson for here for us who are parents. And that is, as God teaches here and in the second commandment, that God will visit the sins of the parents to the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Hate him by false worship. Hating him by refusing to submit to him. Hating him by refusing to take hold of Christ. Now, it's not that God punishes children for the sins of their father. It's actually much more tragic. God gives our children over to our sins. Is that what you want for your children? You want them to repeat your sins in the generations to come? It's a very solemn and sober warning to us as parents. They've got to give us grace to walk in holiness and give us grace then to train our children in the ways of God. Then we will enjoy the great covenant blessing of loving kindness to a thousand generations because our God is a God of mercy and loving kindness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a, it's a good warning for us that we're not to fight against God. Then he goes on to make an appeal and the appeal is that we will seek God. And here you see something of, of a good friend in, in Eliphaz. He, and a man that loves God. And, and the appeal is, is a very righteous appeal. And it's good again for all of us to hear it. It's just wrongly placed in the case of Job. But look at verses 8 to 16. But as for me. So Job, here's what I'm saying. I would seek God. I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth. He sends water on the fields so that he sets on high those who are lowly. Those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness. And the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. By day, they meet with darkness and grope at noon as in the night. But he saves from the sword of their mouth and the poor from the hand of the mighty. So the helpless has hope and unrighteousness must shut its mouth. Now, it's wonderful counsel. He's telling Job, though he's calling Job to repentance, He's telling Job what all of us need to hear in the midst of our trials, and that is for me, I would seek God and I would place my cause. I'd lay it all out before him. And that's what we're to do in the midst of our trials and of our sufferings and of our afflictions and of those inexplicable things that happen to us in our lives. We must not push back and fight, but rather as as the psalmist in Psalm 63, with earnest desiring for God to seek Him, humbling ourselves, repenting as necessary, seeking Him in the ways that He's appointed through communion and, and using uh, the means of grace with searching the Scriptures and praying and Christian fellowship and, and seeking Him in corporate worship, channeling all of our vexations and, and our griefs and our sorrows into this desire for God 
But that is where he's directing us. He directs us by our trials to himself. He's saying, seek me. That's what I prayed there in Romans 5. That with justification you have peace, but you also have uh, tribulations. Because tribulation works perseverance, and perseverance, endurance, and endurance, hope. The very hope with which this section ends. And so, it's like a cattle driver or a sheep herder. Our, our, our afflictions are designed by the Spirit of Christ to cause us to call out and to seek God. And to know He never turns away. He never turns a deaf ear to someone who seeks Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in order to encourage us, he sets God before us in the most wonderful manner, doesn't he? In verse 9, you seek this God who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He's telling us that our God is is inexhaustible. Um, Psalm 145.3 says that our God is a great God and he's greatly to be praised. His greatness is manifested in the infinity, the the unsearchableness of his nature, as he says, he does great unsearchable things. The Apostle Paul refers to this verse then in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. God's judgments are unsearchable. His wisdom is beyond our scope. He's great. He does innumerable wondrous things, Eliphaz reminds us. Wonders without number. We sang in Psalm 96 and read portion of it. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods, for all the gods are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. He who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them who governs all things by his wonderful, remarkable, marvelous power, marvels without number. This is the God that you're to seek. Does he not have everything that you stand in need of? Can you imagine anything that you really need or or have want of or need of that he is not able to supply? This great God. And then Eliphaz moves from this general principle, because sometimes you and I, our minds just kind of boggle at greatness of God. So he moves to specifics. In the first place in the general creation, he speaks of one act of God's goodness. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. What a week to have this verse, huh? Wait, it rained four or five days without end. And the earth has been refreshed and the trees have perked up and the flowers are blooming. The birds are singing because God sends rain. God waters the fields. And it is a wonder. Now, today we know more about rain than they did when Eliphaz spoke these words. But it's still a great mystery. The whole cycle of evaporation is a mystery. But it's also a mystery of how God sends rain. He sends rain on the earth. Uh, Perhaps you've seen in the South the the phenomenon that I've seen on more than one occasion. A thunderstorm. It is rainy on that side of the street. It is bone dry 50 feet away on this side of the street. There is the line between the rain and no rain. God will send drought to where he desires to send drought. 
He sends floods the way he will send floods. It's all simply a manifestation of glorious, sovereign, divine providence that takes place in the world. And it's but a type for the whole then. All that's around us, from the smallest little things to the baby birds learning to fly to clouds and mountains and, and trees. And it's all a manifestation of the great goodness of the innumerable works of our God. Then he moves to the case of his people and what God does then for his people. Verse 11, he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Now, on the one hand, this is an encouragement to Job. He must seek the Lord. He must humble himself. But for all of us who walk before the Lord in humility and mourn, this is a great promise. It was a promise of, of prayed by Mary in Luke 1.52. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He's exalted those who were humble. And God does that. He will, in the midst of your trials and difficulties, exalt you, perhaps not to some preeminence, but to a place of safety, a place of great joy and rest, because God hates and resists the proud, but He exalts the humble. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. The psalm repeats this, when the psalmist uh, reminds us in Psalm 33 that God frustrates the plans and makes null the counsel of men and of the wicked. Yes, they will not have success against God's people, against the church at the end of the day because he captures the wise by their own shrewdness and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness. They, they will fall into their own pits and into their own uh, traps. Uh, the Psalms often speak of this. Psalm 715, he's dug a pit and hollowed it out. And he's fallen into the hole which he made. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot has been caught. Time and again, the psalmist testifies that as snares and traps have been laid for him, the wicked who have laid those snares and traps have fallen into them. This is the confidence that belongs to the church. Now, this is the only passage out of Job that Paul formally quotes as Scripture. But doing so... He teaches us exactly what God is doing here because in 1 Corinthians 3.19, to show the folly of the wisdom of the world, he said, the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, that great Pauline uh, way of quoting Scripture, it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Quoting here Job uh, chapter 5. And then he says of them that they're blind. He blinds his enemies. By day they meet with darkness and they grope at noon as in night. Spiritually blind. I think of the, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah who were groping around trying to find the door to Lot's house. Or of Elymas on the island of Cyprus who temporarily uh, was blinded in, in mid, midday. God will do that physically, but it, it's a much more serious thing to be blinded spiritually, you see. And there's so many people today in the world, those who are planning all the evil against God, against His people, against His church, they're blind. They think they'll be successful. But they're like blind men wandering around. 
At the end of the day, their plans will be thwarted. At the end of the day, Satan's plans against you will be thwarted. Yes, even as he had plans against Job, even as God allowed him to move against Job, his plans were thwarted. God protected Job from the evil one as he came uh, against him because he saves from the sword of their mouth, and that could either be from the sword and the mouth, from physical weapons and from um, verbal weapons, or it could be the mouth as a sword, which is often spoken of slander. He saves the poor from the hand of the mighty. Here's our confidence, you see, that God will always deliver his people um, to some degree here and forever and eternity. So the result is, notice the word so, the helpless has hope. And then righteousness must shut its mouth. Again, this passage is quoted in Psalm 107, 42. At the end of all these great deliverances provided by God, the psalmist says, The upright see it and are glad. All unrighteousness shuts its mouth. There will be those times, those times in the unfolding of history, where God will cause unrighteousness to shut its mouth. Where God will vindicate His people and He will vindicate His church. But there will be the ultimate time when God does that. On the day of judgment, when then all righteousness shall be shut up by God and His holy purpose is fully revealed. But God is telling you this, that you might have hope now. Wrongly applied to Job. This was not Job's problem that he was suffering because he was a wicked man. But all the counsel that's given to a suffering Christian uh, is wise here. And it's wise for all of us. It's wise not to fight against God. It's better to seek Him while He may be found. To seek Him in the ways that He Himself has appointed. And so, my dear friends, I encourage you this day. As you go through many different trials. Some have been quite severe. Others, not as severe, but at times because of a chronic illness or whatever, they begin to shape your life. Some are inexplicable. And the temptation will be to be vexed with God. To be angry with God. To push back against God. Why me, Lord? It's not fair. Oh, but don't do that, you see. Recognize the greatness of God. The marvel of His ways. And seek Him. Seek Him, then you will be shaped by Him through your trials. You will be the silver and gold that come out of the furnace refined rather than a piece of rock that could not be shaped by the furnace but keeps all of its ugliness and distortion. Oh, dear friend, as you are a Christian, you rest in God, you seek God. But perhaps there's some here this morning and you've never sought God. You're even this day walking about as a blind man at noonday. Much of what I said makes no sense to you. You are the fool who pushes back against God. You are the simple one who's easily led astray by every little wind of philosophy that comes from the culture. But you understand that what Eliphaz says will be true of you if you continue in your sins impenitent. That you will be rooted up and you'll be cast into hell forevermore. For you push back against God. 
refuse God in the way that he appointed and called. And so I urge you now, if you find yourself in this situation, if your conscience testifies to you that you are one who is angry and, and you, you hate God, you want nothing to do with this beautiful, glorious, holy God described in Scripture, then I call on you to seek Him. To seek Him in the only place He may be found. And it's to seek Him by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, the appointed Savior of sinners, and to repent of your sins and rest in Christ alone. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.